Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Nikesh Nikki Parekh. Nikki is an East Coast transplant who has built a career growing private and public technology companies in Seattle. In 2016, he co-founded Suplari, a startup that's applying artificial intelligence technology to the software procurement process as a way to help companies save money and reduce risk. His impressive growing resume includes executing seven acquisitions worth $430 million, six financing worth $150 million. Holy smokes, Nikki, what's happening? Welcome. You're also a father and a husband. We, we don't have that yeah. part in there, but that's, that's a big part of you, I know, as far as your values and how you spend your time outside of work. So yeah, yeah. welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I'm, I'm glad Good we finally got this scheduled. I know. Well, we've had all sorts of crazy things and then COVID hit and travel yeah. and just life, you know, that's how it works. Yeah, totally. Yep. Um, and we'll get into all that. First, I'm going to crush you with my rapid fire questions, and then we'll get into right. what you've been, what you've been up to. Okay. I'm ready. Um, this one is good. I like this one. Do you make decisions based on gut or data analysis more? Uh, I am a data, I'm a data junkie. So like, yeah. you know, I think it's data with a tinge of gut. Um, yeah. I need to see the numbers. Uh, unfortunately, like that's, that's one of the things that, you know, people can be critical of me is that I'm like, well, you know, generally, um, whenever we have a decision, I always like to make sure it's backed up by data. So yeah, you know, that's I don't think that, that's a bad thing. That's a good thing. Are you a morning or night person? I'm a morning person. Like I cannot work after like nine, even though I'm online, like don't ask me to make big decisions at night. I just can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. If you were in a band, what would it be called? Oh my God, that's a hard one. It is a hard uh, one. And it's happiness like junkies. Oh, I like that. Yeah. That's a good one. Are you mountain or ocean guy? Ooh, that's a hard one. I, I'd say I'm kind of uh, Pacific Northwest because I, I think like I like the mix of both. Like that's, uh, you know, that uh, ski to, uh, what is it? The sea to sky highway. But if I had yeah. to choose, I would probably be a uh, an ocean guy because I, I, I there's something about water that I find very calming. So yeah, I agree. Which business book do you most often recommend to others? Which or one that like really like that, that you really enjoyed? Business book that I really or maybe enjoyed. just even a personal book. Maybe you don't read for business, which would be so refreshing. Because I always feel like a loser after these podcasts. I'm like, I'm not reading enough. Hopefully you're reading for pleasure yeah. too. Uh, I, I, the one that I have been recommending to a lot of people recently is a happiness book. So I've, I've been on a happiness uh, journey probably the last uh, four or five years. And if, mm -hmm. if the book is called, If You're So Smart, Why Aren't You Happy? Okay. Um, 
And it's, it's basically like, it's somewhere like, you know, it's funny. A lot of what I'm learning is that a lot of kind of the cores of happiness has, were like figured out two or 3000 years ago. And then we've sort of been adapting it to, you know, like there since over the last probably 10 years, there's been a lot of science around happiness. And so mm. this one is like really for the, you know, you're a high powered executive or you went to the right school and you're really, you've been on that treadmill your whole life. And, you know, you may be achieving what you want to achieve. You may not be achieving what you want to achieve and sort of right. unpacking, you know, the, all of the issues around what drives happiness and that the fact that achievement and happiness are actually not correlated, not correlated. or related yeah. at all, actually. Yeah, I think maybe that I want to definitely get into that. Now I'm like taking notes because I'm like, uh oh, I wasn't going to ask about that. And now that you brought yeah. it up, I'm like, I'm we're going there because I love this kind of stuff. I fully you geek out on data. I geek out on these yeah. like concepts that are big, yeah. like happiness. Um, are you an extrovert or introvert? Uh, you know, you would think I'm an extrovert, but I am a I'm in a mild introvert based off of, you know, Myers-Briggs and things like that. And I, mm -hmm. I think at the end of the day, I get my strength and my energy from like deep thinking. And like, if the, if the choice was, Hey, let's get a group together to solve this problem. Or if it was like, just put my head down and figure it out. I'm going to put my head down and figure it out kind of guy. That's where I get a lot of my energy from. Yeah. And what is your favorite time of year and why? Uh, my favorite time of year is generally, um, well, I would say historically it's always been fall uh, because I grew up in Western Massachusetts and that's kind of like the time uh, where, you know, Western Massachusetts just shines. And I love this kind of transition from summer uh, to, to fall um, mm -hmm. or winter. So being in Seattle, I would say, you know, just based on the weather, though, it, it is probably more like July, where, you know, yeah, right. finally, that one you can finally July. get yeah. out. <laughs> the July, <laughs> but, August time frame. Yeah. So we'll yeah. get right into it. I definitely want to talk yeah. about this happiness thing, but I, I usually start yeah. out the podcast. I'm always super curious about people's kind of life paths and choices they've made yeah. along the way. You're, um, yeah. Are you first generation from an Indian family? Um, yeah. Well, you're first generation, meaning my, my, I was born in Cleveland, Ohio. My parents, yeah. um, my parents actually, my father came, um, came to the United States in 1965 to get his uh, bachelor's at Clarkson. And then um, my mom and my dad were actually not married. Uh, and my dad, like this is back in the day, right? My dad, basically, they were childhood friends. And then my dad heard my mom was starting to talk to boys about getting married back in India. And uh, my dad basically sent a telegram to my grandfather asking for uh, my mother's hand in marriage. And, you know, they basically, my, my aunt brokered a marriage over the phone. And then my family like literally put my unmarried mother on a plane to America and like, like my dad, like literally was, you know, had just graduated from, he was in his master's at that point. They picked her up from the airport and they were like the first couple to get married and first Indian marriage in Cleveland, Ohio. And it was like covered in the papers. Wow. That's kind of yeah. a big deal. Was there a community there for them to raise you around or were they kind of like the Indian so, family within a white community? 
Uh, I'd say it was probably more the Indian family within a white community. So like for their wedding, like they all were like, all right, Shashi and Kailas are getting married. Who knows what we're supposed to do? Right. So they had like, you know, an uncle and a friend do the wedding and they like yeah. read about it and they did an Indian ceremony, but they also had to do a, a church ceremony to be officially married in Cleveland, Ohio at that time. And then we actually so, moved from, uh, so my sister was born and then I was born. So I was like, six months old and then we moved to South Carolina and then we moved to um, uh, uh, Pittsfield, Massachusetts in the Berkshires where I, re that's where I effectively grew up. Um, so yeah. My dad was a chemical engineer and, you know, he trapped, he went with big companies to different places to make plastic. And was your mom working or was she raising you guys at home? She largely raised us at home. I would say when we got to middle school, she she was a chemical, uh, she was a chemist, so she had a variety of jobs, and so we were latchkey kids for some period of time. But on the whole, yeah. um, on the whole, like my mom was around raising us. I mean, it was like yeah. it was a different time, a little bit of a different yeah. time. But well, like, a different time. Was it like an idyllic childhood, or how would you describe what it was like to be you? Let's let's go to, I don't know why I always go to fifth grade. I'm like, let's talk about Nikki in fifth yeah. grade. Well, like I, I would say like it was, if I were not Indian, right? Like it was an ideal like high school experience, right? We grew up in a small Western Mass, like a Massachusetts town there. Everybody worked for General Electric. You know, we rode our bikes to Palmer's and got candy and nobody, like we would disappear for four or five hours and our parents would never ask us where we were right and we were similar we to my childhood things. yeah yeah we would we were doing things that you or I would never allow our ch children to do be like oh For yeah sure. we're gonna go off into the woods and go to a waterfall by ourselves and yeah. they're like all right have fun kids um and uh but I'd say like the the flip of it was that we were um we were one we were one of a small number of Indian families in the town mm -hmm. So like my parents really pushed us to like Americanize, right? When we were growing yeah. up, which was definitely, uh, you know, I, I'd say it had its pluses and minuses. So like, I don't know. What does know. that mean to them? What does that mean? Like, what's your idea of what it meant to feel American? Yeah, like we, like my family historically is vegetarian, right? Religiously vegetarian. And, you know, we started eating meat because that's what my mom was like, that's what the kids do. Like, I don't speak, they never forced us to learn our Indian language, like the Indian language my parents generally speak. So, and then like religion, like, you know, we, religion wise, we would get together with families on Diwali once a year, right? So there was no like real, so like religion. This is interesting. Your, your upbringing yeah. is the equivalent almost exactly to like my Jewish upbringing, right? Where when, I, when I moved to New York and I was like, these people are so much more like observant and I don't even mean religiously, I just mean culturally yeah. fully embracing their Judaism. Yeah. And ours was yeah. just a little bit watered down, like, hey, on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur we go, but other than that, like not even really yeah. just, yeah, 100% assimilated. And then I would say my, if like, I'd say my parents would have preferred to have given us greater exposure to our roots and our family and um, other Indian people. But like, you know, the fact that we were living in this, you know, small town of 50,000 people or 100,000 people in Western Massachusetts, it was more important for me to play baseball and soccer and, you know, 
feel like I could be yeah. one of the cool kids in middle school yeah. or in elementary school versus, and were you hey, of, you're were the you one Indian of the cool kid. Kids? Yeah, were you one of the uh, cool kids? Uh, uh, in, are we still talking about fifth grade or what well, year are we talking about? I guess about? We, we could move to high school. I guess, when did okay. you feel cool in I, your upbringing? I, fifth grade I, I don't think I ever really was uh I, I don't think I ever was uh in a group I think was my problem I don't know if that was a problem but like I wasn't a jock I wasn't particularly good at sports but I played sports um I was good at school but I wasn't like in I wasn't like in the yuppie crowd either like I kind of floated between different crowds um, so like I had a, a good set of friends who were kind of all in that gray zone between the geeks, the yuppies and the jocks probably. I think that's the um, perfect spot for everybody to stand. Like you're like, I'm kind of the, every, I'm on, I'm on everybody's A minus list. I'm not quite on the C list. But yeah, I, I would say, I'd say I'm on the BB plus list for everybody's <laughs> BB plus list. Right. So like, you know, we had a, we had a great childhood, right? Like we rode yeah. bikes. We, you know, everybody drank their first beer in the woods at, on the bunny uh, yeah. trail. Sounds, sounds very similar, honestly, yeah. like almost perfectly paralleled to my upbringing. That's so Where funny. did you grow up? So I grew up here in Seattle, on Mercer Island. Oh, and, no um, kidding. But yeah, like just, you know, we'd, we'd leave for the whole day on our bikes and come home at dinner and yeah. play in the woods and, you know, swim and yeah, not much adult supervision, 70s. I, mean, I don't know how old you yeah. are, but yeah, it was the seventies. So, yeah. so, but if you weren't so like amazing at any one thing, how the hell did you get into Harvard? Like, what did you do uh, to get yeah, into so Harvard? I, That's amazing. I, I, I would say like in the, um, in my life, like I am not particularly the smartest kid, but I definitely work, work or worked hard to, to achieve. So I worked hard and I, you know, I got into a good school. Like I didn't think, you know, I was in, I was, I grew up in Pittsfield, Mass and um, nobody had gotten into Harvard in years. And, um, uh, but, you know, we still sent kids to our public high school, Pittsfield high school, right? Like nothing special, but like we sent kids to good schools. And so I didn't really expect that. Like I, I kind of threw an application in and ended up getting into some good schools but I was really I really wanted to go to a different school like you know what my the school I was targeting was Duke because uh, my sister went there and I just thought Duke was the greatest and wait the, so you didn't get into Duke no I did I did oh. and then um this goes back this actually goes back to the Indian part and then like I threw in uh, my res you know my stretch school was Harvard and I applied and you know, I, I, I got in and I wasn't real, I was thinking about, I was really thinking about Duke. And then I went to um, the, the pre-college days or whatever it was, you know, your, your admit day. And, you know, at Duke, everyone kind of seemed like they were from Pittsfield, um, which was like, there were a lot of, you know, there were some Indian people, but they were a lot of people, nothing against your hair color, but everybody was like Northeast, yeah. brown hair, upper middle class, very probably, nice yeah. people. Yeah, 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 yeah. I and get then, it. And then, and then going to Harvard, it was like, wow, there's some brown people from India here. And there was like lots of uh, opportunity. It felt to me there were lots of opportunities to connect with being Indian at Harvard. Uh, and even though, like, even from my admit experience, I didn't think it would be as fun, but 
but I thought it would be a much better life experience. And then so so mm-hmm. I, I ended up choosing Harvard for the diversity and the international exposure over Duke. And yeah. uh, I think that, you know, even though like, again, I, I, I didn't think my, I didn't think Harvard was particularly fun. Uh, it was a really good uh, experience because I then forced myself, I didn't force myself. I took like a class on India or something around yeah. India every, oh, for you. Uh, every semester. Yeah. It's going to be super interesting now with, um, with COVID and how it's impacted college admissions and mm-hmm. the numbers of international kids that are either deferring or not coming, how sure. that's going to impact um, diversity within the schools. You know, the other thing that's different, though, like when we were growing up, this, this, what we're doing here, talking over Zoom, like, like WhatsApp with your family in India, like that just didn't happen, right? Like mm-hmm. the phone call to India was like this, like, okay, we'll do this once every two months, and then we're going to get everybody yeah. around the phone. And there might have been one phone in the neighborhood in India or in the colony and everybody would, you know, talk on the phone and the, the conversation was like, can you hear me? Can you hear me? I can't believe yeah. I'm talking to you. It's amazing. Is yeah. everybody healthy? Yeah. But versus now, like you're interacting with people internationally, like every day. Uh, yeah. So like, that, I, I that, just that wonder, flattened. The, I, I just wonder from an, like, you are kids like that magic of kind of being international like or like this whole concept like I didn't know anything I didn't I, this is that's a, this is an extreme statement I didn't know anything about my religion growing up like now like mm-hmm. with a browser you can like sit in on any lecture about anywhere in the world oh, about yeah. Buddhism about Jainism about Hinduism about you know Judaism like All of it's it. just like yeah. a, it's very it's a very different time so it's, you know, it's, I do it's wonder I do wonder what that college experience is going to be like in the world of COVID. And, but like, I, I don't know if my kids have that same yearning to connect as <laughs> well, I do. I think, Did. I think that they will. And as they start to get things and people that interest them, they'll get to pick and choose. And the cool part is they have access. The access yeah. is just incredible. So you wanted to be, when you went there, were you going there with the intention of like, Hey, I think I want to become a doctor or did you decide that you want to become a doctor while at Harvard? I, I actually went to Harvard wanting to be a professor, like studying okay. like, like molecular biology and biochemistry or something like that. And so I actually spent four years like researching plant molecular biology and then came into my senior year and I was just like, I can't do this anymore. Uh, yeah. so then like, I, I was like kind of stuck because I was like, you know, if you want to go to like, I, I had taken all the pre-med courses and taken the MCAT. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I got to the end and I just had this like, like crisis of what do I want to be when I grow up? Um, so I ended up, um, you know, basically preparing to go to medical school, preparing to get a PhD, preparing to go get, a a degree in public health, but then I got a fellowship to actually go to India and do social service. Um, and uh, and that, you, was that was probably in, the most, in, in Mumbai? In Mumbai. Um, and that was probably the most meaningful year of my life uh, was yeah. kind of just picking up and moving to India. Um, my parents, like cr- my mother cried. She was like, you know, my, my father wasn't excited about it, but he's like, we worked so hard to leave India and now you're like throwing it all away to go back. 
basically. What was your experience of going to India? Like what surprised you? Because like it, it might be similar to me going to like Israel where you picture like before I went and I mean, obviously not with the internet, but when I was little, I pictured Israel as like camels in the desert. Yeah. And then I was like, oh wait, this like Tel Aviv is like this thriving, beautiful, yeah. you know, metropolitan, it's beautiful. And what was your right. experience of Mumbai? Uh, so Mumbai, uh, have you been ever? No, it's uh, like a hundred percent dying to go, and yeah, yeah can't wait. I hope so I get to go. This is like so. This is like 1995 to 1996. So it was like 25 years ago, and a lot has changed. But you know, it was just amazing because it was like um, Mumbai is a hot, very dense, crowded place. Um, it was a mix of incredible, and it still is like the poorest people in the world and the richest people in the world. Um, it's a mix of like old, like religion that's been around for 5,000 years and like, you know, the latest technologies in the world. Um, and so, and we have like literally hundreds of family spread out across just in Mumbai and, you know, probably even more across India. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I went back and I got into this like international, this UN sponsored population science institute. And uh, I was living in a dorm and there were people from all over the world studying population science in um, this part of India and, um, or in Mumbai. And it made me realize that I just, I couldn't deal with international public health was a very bureaucratic and time consuming process. And then I switched to do um, malaria research. So I kind of picked up my bi micro uh, molecular biology and then I was uh, doing research on uh, vaccines for malaria and at the same time was like volunteering in women and children's slum health clinics. And wow. so that was like, and, but like the, the best part was just like getting, reconnecting with my family, reconnecting oh, with my yeah. religion. I opened up my, um, my grandfather's apartment that was like filled with like rats and like I just lived there by myself in like a part of India that was like no, no indoor plumbing, um, like in the heart of kind of the commercial districts of Mumbai. And it was just an amazing experience. Like I, I really hope my kids do something kind of off the beaten path while they're young. Um, yeah. And then, you know, com coming back to America, that really kind of thought made me think about my values and what I wanted to be when I grow up. And it was really yeah, important. That's really cool. Especially as you're talking about kind of the seeking of happiness in the last five years. And now yeah. to look with reflection on the fact that that was like one of the happiest years of your life or the most rewarding. And yet you're it, like living in a know, place where there's not plumbing, you know, it's like right. you start to realize like, what do you really need? And a lot of it is maybe just growth and curiosity and challenge right. and, and gratitude, you know, that yeah. you probably felt severe gratitude for what you have at home. Like you're like, wow, I didn't quite realize right. all that I have back in Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah. But it was also uh, a little bit like, you don't know your half, like if I didn't appreciate it as much as I should have at the time and looking well, it's back always that it, way, right? like, I was like, yeah. oh, that was a really good year. Yeah. Yeah. It's always the case. And so, but then I just know there's an intersection of starting to work in investment banking and yeah. healthcare and yeah. deciding to go back to HBS to get yeah. your MBA. Yeah. So how so did you I, make those kind of life decisions? What, what yeah. sparked that? So I, came, I, I came back to the U.S. and decided that like, I felt like where I found purpose in life was actually, um, was, you know, was in these women and children's slum health clinics and I wanted to become a doctor. So I applied to medical school 
And while, you know, I had a year to kill. So while I was applying to medical school, I was like, just went to a party, ran into a fraternity brother of mine. He's like, you got this year to kill. Why don't you try investment banking? And I was like, oh, I never thought about it. And he's like, it's healthcare investment banking. You, you did biochemistry. And um, I was like, I've never even used a spreadsheet. Like what, like, I don't understand why I would do this. And then I also had this negative perception from Harvard that like everybody that like, like the people that went into banking and, and consulting, they were not like, like they were not uh, like me. Yeah. Well, they were just like, they were like, you know, they were, they just weren't me. That wasn't my thing. I yeah. was like the nerdy, geeky biochemistry kid. Right. Um, yeah. And so I never tried it. And then I actually, after, you know, I, I started working at this investment bank and I was like, Oh, this is actually pretty interesting. You know, it's mm -hmm. like healthcare related. And then there are all these little puzzles that you're constantly figuring out. And so I ended up turning down medical school, applying to business school and going to business school instead. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I guess my, my goal in life is to, you know, really, yeah, I think like, you know, through business, you can basically affect more people's lives in, the, in theory than just being yeah. a doctor. Yeah, um, it's more one to one than, than, yeah, than one to many. But of course, like, yeah. It sounds like a Nikki fashion. You're like, go big or go home. I think I'll just go to HBS. Yeah. Like of all schools, yeah. you're just like going to the top uh, of it the. It was the only the one chain. that took me. It was the only right. one that took me. So it was, it was yeah. very limited choices. So, yeah. you but know, did you have ultimately. Kind of guiding you along the way. Did you have mentors or teachers that kind of told uh, you they believed in you? Or like, what was, what was kind of fueling your drive at that time? Uh, I think it was just like. Um, you know, certainly my, my peers, like the one, the person who took me into the investment bank, who was in my fraternity, I talked to a number of people about, you know, should I just keep working? Should I go to medical school? Should I go to business school? And um, one of my boss, one of the, the guys I worked with in the investment bank, they gave me an offer to keep going at the investment bank. And, and one of them was just like, Nikki, you need to go to business school. And I was mm. like, well, why? I'm like making reasonable money and I'm doing really well. And he's like, I think just like you have a lot of potential, but you need that. You need, he, he, I needed to mature and I needed yeah. more shape and I needed more exposure. Right. I was just like very narrow and, you know, uh, God bless Bob Dahl, but he was just like, you know, I think you're really smart, but you should get out of here and leave and go yeah. do something else. And then, you know, was that a, if you was that a good back, choice for you? I I think the best choice, right? Like, did you, and you, it sounds like you lived in New York City. I did. I lived in New York for many years and I lived in San Francisco. I love New yeah. York. I mean, like, what's not to love about being young in New York, right? So, like, yeah. it's just the best, right? So, you're like, yeah. I'm working till 4 a.m. and then we'd go out every night and we're burning yeah. candle at both ends and, it was amazing. Yeah. And then just, and business, just business school is more what I mean. Like, was that the right choice for you? Like if, if you were yeah. mentoring, you know, high school students right now, what's your take on education and getting an MBA? And I, I think uh, like there probably isn't much that I learned in business school other than a structured approach to problem solving. So I don't think like that necessarily was like magical, but like the people at in business school are magical. So like the networking well, at, at Harvard Business School for sure. But if someone's yeah. just like, I'm just going to go to a not as prestigious school to get an MBA, 
the actual MBA as far as learning and problem solving and qualifying yourself to run a business, what's your general take? Because I mean, obviously, if my kids could go to Harvard Business School and get that network, that's incredible. But mm -hmm. if it's just some average school that doesn't have that same network. Yeah, I probably wouldn't advocate if you can't get into a top 10 business school and you're going to spend 200 grand going to a yeah. second or third tier business school. And I'd actually argue this for college too. You know, you probably should find some way to supplement and get the yeah. skills. Like it's all available online or locally mm -hmm. and just, you know, keep, you know, find ways to supplement, but, you know, keep growing your career in a different way. Like yeah. you know, and two, years, he, he, two years and $200,000 is a lot of, it's a big yeah, opportunity cost. Yeah, no. absolutely. And so as you've grown your career and kind of gotten into tech, um, are you, as a hiring manager, are you more biased toward kind of pedigreed resumes or do you also believe in the, um, I can't remember what Ace Greenberg from, from uh, Bear Stearns called it, but instead of MBA, he had an acronym for like basically uh, ass kicking like underdogs, <laughs> like people right. who are just like gritty, who have no, nothing but uh, their work yeah. and their work. I think it, it depends. Like some of the best hires I've ever made were Harvard College undergrads who, you know, but they they had the stick-to-itiveness and the grit plus kind of the analytical capabilities. Mm -hmm. I think on the other the other side, you do with certain, like you don't, I don't come across a lot of Ivy League grads when we're recruiting, to be honest. Well, um, we're in Seattle, but in New York, there's a lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they're everywhere. But, like, there's also this sense of entitlement and competition and the sacrifice yeah. they're making for you. And yeah. um, so, like, I, I think, like, I would probably err more towards the, you know, the hardworking, stick-to-itive, analytical person who doesn't have the Ivy League pedigree. But yeah. it's certainly, like, you know, all of, like, I, I – Prior to supplier, I looked at starting a business where, you know, like uh, around how do you help college students get better jobs? It was kind of like a career coaching model. And when you look at, um, you look at your college, like how does a, you should know this better than anybody, right? Like um, the internal recruiting departments at, you know, Zillow or Google, they use like your, um, they use where you went to college as kind of a, you know, it's a screening tool very quickly in terms of where you sit, your resume sits on the pile, but then it's really up to you to, to get to the next level. And then, you know, the further you get away from that college experience, it's like, okay, what did you do most recently right. versus like going to the right college? And I would say that's probably the better, the more important thing to me as well as like the personal attributes and what have mm -hmm. you done lately that show that you're going to stick with stick with it in a hard situation? Yeah, I was recruiting in New York during that time a lot in the alternative asset space and a lot of investment mm -hmm. banking and those industries that yeah. tend to be very pedigree focused. What types of people are you drawn to in general if you're trying to build out your winning team? Uh, I mean, like for me, uh, like people that are, um, create, like I, I have a, um, high need for a creative work. 
So people that are, you know, I, I like the, the creative problem solver, like you, you, again, you shouldn't hire people that are exactly like you and you should create a diverse team, but people that are creative, that enjoy problem solving, that are stick to that, um, that have high stick to or grit around, you know, cause like a lot of things, times things just don't work out the first time you try something. So like, um, those are really important attributes. Um, mm-hmm. And people who are patient um, is also the other piece that I think is very important. So, you know, I've managed people in the Bay Area where you have lots of, like, you know, to stay two years at a company in the Bay Area is like, oh, my God, why did you stay at that company so long, right? Versus yeah. here in Seattle, if you haven't stayed three to five years, you're like, oh, did something terrible happen to you? Um, or, you know, why didn't you stay five years? So, like, just people that are willing to stick with it and, like, figure yeah. it out. Like that, I, I have a high degree of, um, uh, I, I value that greatly in people, just knowing that, you know, life is long and things don't naturally like magically come together a lot. And, you know, the yeah. people that just sort of jump are not necessarily, um, you know, probably the best long-term employees or teammates or people you're going to yeah. invest in. Yeah. How did you transition your career into technology from investment banking? Like, did you think you would maybe have that path? And then after HBS kind of, yeah. You know, so I, when I, yeah, when I got out of business school, it was like the te- internet was just happening. Right. So, you know, every, so I was trying to decide, did I want to go into biotech or tech um, out of business school? And so like, and everybody was starting a company in, you know, 1999 mm-hmm. and 2000. And um, so I basically, after talking to a lot of people in biotech, I said, you know what, let me, um, let me do something in tech because I can always come back to biotech with my background. And I didn't yeah. really think I would do investment banking because like I just, I never got into business to just make money and yeah. run spreadsheets and do deals. Um, and then I was all set uh, to stay in Boston and had rented an apartment with some friends. And I just got a call from another one of my fraternity brothers saying like, hey, there are these guys out in Seattle. They all just made some money and they're starting a venture capital firm. You should you should move out here. You should talk to them because it could be really interesting. And I was like, Seattle, why would I ever want to go to Seattle? <laughs> like, there's nothing in Seattle. Uh, Look at you interesting now. <laughs> to me. I know. 20 years later. Um, and... Uh, um, so like, basically I ended up meeting the guys at second Avenue partners. So Nick Hanauer, Pete Higgins, Mike Slade and Keith Grinstein. And I was like, yeah, these guys clearly know a lot. And they, um, my sense is they're either going to start something new or they're going to get bored and they're going to do something different or, you know, they'll, maybe they'll back a company that I start. So I was like, oh, let me try this for a couple of years. So I moved out to Seattle for a couple of years and, uh, haven't looked back. And the rest is history. Okay, so Active Rain was your kind of most challenging? I've never, I haven't had an experience which is just like clear up and to the right. You know, like some yeah. people have been like, oh yeah, I started Facebook and now it's a $400 billion company. And yeah. It's super simple, right? right? Um, you know, after, after Second Avenue Partners, I joined one of our investments called House Values. Yeah. And House Values was like a really, you know, real estate 1.0 and it had done really well. And Ian Morris had just come on as um, CEO and you know the problem was like it was it was just not growing fast enough so he and I like dug into that and were able to like figure out how to grow it and you know it went public and it was a great experience but then like you know we ran into a market 
disruption, like the, you know, the great, you know, the real estate crash of 2007, yeah. 2008. So, so that was a challenge. Um, and after that, I went and um, I was like, I want to do something with more purpose. So I, I was CEO of a, um, a spin out from David Baker's lab at the University of Washington. And we were converting, uh, it was when clean tech and you know energy security and global warming are you know still important were very important and um you know r right at the moment i was like okay i'm ceo of this startup like the market like fell out bear stearns collapsed um and it was it was we were converting seaweed into low-cost biofuels and renewable chemicals so that was a challenge because we had like a team in chile harvesting seaweed and kind of trying to figure out the agriculture piece of it and a team of biochemists, you know, on the biotechnology side, developing microbes that could live on seaweed as a sole source of carbon and convert it to ethanol or butanol or others. So that was interesting. Wow. This is like, a, this is a thing. I'm like, it's kind of like in my mind, I'm like, that's a little over my head, but that's incredible. Wow. And then, and then active rain was like, active rain was like, social media for real estate. So that was a great experience. Like I would say of all my experiences, I, that put the most hair on my chest in that yeah. um, I, I transitioned from the, um, the founder. Uh, the founder had built this great company, um, but the team had a lot of loyalty to the founder. And so when they brought in the, you know, the khaki pants, blue shirt, MBA, you know, kind of managing that transition from, hey, you know, we're going to be the next Facebook to, hey, let's manage by objectives and set goals. Like that was a, that was a challenge. And I'm then sure. uh, I would say the most rewarding though had, was like active reign to market leader to Trulia and then Trulia being per, um, purchased by Zillow. And it wasn't anything particular about the business, but it was really the people. Like I just love the people between Active Rain, Market Leader, Trulia, Zillow. Um, just the best team I've worked, you know, like I love my team now, but that the team I worked with during like, you know, it was four years of constant change, but just a really solid group of people that are just amazing. Yeah. Well, that probably set you up really well when you started Suplari. Tell, tell me about that story. Sure. Uh, so, uh, so we, Zillow had purchased Trulia. I had taken my businesses, went over to my Zillow counterparts. I took a long vacation. And then when, and during that, um, I ran into a friend of mine named Jeff Gerber, who was chief architect at Aptio. And, you know, he was leaving Aptio at the, um, and was like, you know, there's this, there's this opportunity. It's called machine learning and it's called the cloud. And, you know, if you think about enterprises, they have all this data that nobody looks at and there's all this great information in there and what we should do is just like move this data to the cloud and leverage machine learning to make predictions on how companies can operate more efficiently and I was like wow that's that's really amazing like I you know I saw at Zillow and Trulia how like making data public and publicly available really like changed how the real estate market operates and you know the thought was hey we could do something similar on the enterprise side um, by really exposing how, you know, data works and, you know, enabling people to do their jobs better. And I didn't know, I don't know, I didn't know anything about AI or machine learning at the time. I knew a little bit. And so, like, generally in my career, I'm always trying to keep my learning curve steep. It's like, okay, what can I do 
that's going to like really help me learn something new. And so, I, you know, I, I have this perspective that artificial intelligence and machine learning are going to be this big thing. So I was like, yeah, let's give it a shot. Uh, and then we recruited a good um, Brian White, who was, had worked, had founded a company with Jeff previously. And um, when we got the three of us together and we had a PowerPoint and um, Madrona was like, has worked with all each of us um, separately um, or, you know, and Jeff has worked on four or five Madrona companies and Brian had worked yeah. on three and once uh, Matt McElwain heard that we were getting the band together, he's like, I'd love to figure out how we can participate. And that's how we started Supplari. That's incredible. And so to date, is this number correct that you have raised $18.6 million in funding? Is that right? Yep. Yep. So we've raised $18.6 million in funding. Um, you know, we've got a great team and, you know, yeah. making great progress. That's incredible. And so what is your biggest, like, well, let's talk pre-COVID. What, what was your kind of thing that was keeping you up at night? I guess you go to bed early because you're a morning guy, but like, what was, yeah. what were you stressing the most about as far as um, what your next challenge was going to be for 2020? For uh, Supplari? Yeah, for Supplari. Yeah, I'd say like the, the challenge, like, well, we're still, you know, we're still optimizing our sales and marketing process. So like, we have a great technology you know, when, uh, we have great customers, customers see a lot of value, but we are selling general So, like supplier sells into the finance and procurement function. And yeah, that, that's a hard that, one. We sell into those functions too. Sometimes it can be challenging. Yeah. So it's generally a, a very, it's a difficult buyer. You know, they're more likely to buy SAP and Oracle. Like there isn't this, like, there isn't a, um, uh, there isn't a lot of history of innovation. Like, you know, generally your, your accounting system is not the place you want to be innovative. You just want to buy IBM Make sure right, it doesn't or whatever. Break. Yeah. Right. So now, you know, in comes a startup that says, Hey, we can help you do things differently. And so like trying to figure out that motion has been like, how do we take innovation and new technology into a very traditional buyer it's kind of the area that we're really kind of spending a lot of time and focusing. Mm -hmm. So COVID hit now we're in June. Uh, yeah. What is it today when we're recording this? I guess it's like, I don't even know, June 12th or something. Yeah. Um, I think I just know that uh, it's been a crazy moment as a, as a dad, as a leader, as a community member, yeah. um, leading through this and coming back to values. How much have you kind of drawn on those company values as far as leading your team through the crisis? Yeah. Um, so I'd say like we have done, a, we have a great team and a great culture. And then I would say the, um, from a culture and a team perspective, you know, we have really focused on our core values, which we have our CAN, C-A-N core values. So customer first, agility mindset, and no ego. And so I'd say ultimately the, the areas that like have been really important are the agility mindset. You know what, things we're constantly iterating and optimizing and testing and flexible because we know we're not going to get things right the first time. So that's been really mm -hmm. important through uh, coronavirus. And then the second is no ego. You know, we, um, you know, like we uh, went, we went through a process of kind of, we, we had our founder values and then we distilled them down to like, okay, here are the values that we're going to focus on as a company went from like seven to three. 
and no ego is probably the most important. And, and the, the person we taught like kind of helped us crystallize our, our values was like, what is the, the thing you're going to put on the door when somebody gets off the elevator and they see that they're going to just turn around and walk away. Right. So like that is like a clear screening mechanism and no ego of like, you know, it's not about me. It's about the team. You know, I, you know, it's all about us working together to have a greater purpose. And if I get no recognition for it, I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. Um, like the, the no ego part is a really important part of our culture that, um, mm-hmm. especially in a time when this time when people are asked to do things that are like, you know, not comfortable necessarily, like, you know, there, you have to be intentional to be at a startup right now. Right. You have to be intentional to want to work at Supplier and work with our team. And that's really important to us. So it's mm-hmm. been, a, you know, like coronavirus has been hard for sure. Right. Like, you know, the world effectively stopped in March and April and now it's starting to thaw. So like being flexible and open and, you know, having to change how we work and working from mm-hmm. home. I think all of have those. You been, have you, have hard. you made any hires during this time? Like how have you treated your that's- recruiting? um strategy and process yeah i mean we've hired three or four people uh generally speaking the um we have uh like the people we hired we had had been in the pipeline for earlier and Mm -hmm. we sort of uh and uh we you know once coronavirus hit like we didn't really know what was going to happen with the economy in the world and obviously there have been negative effects to the economy and so we are still recruiting and still hiring. And now, like, we, I think we've kind of figured out the remote hiring process. And, right. you know, we've hired, we've hi- we're hiring more people. But I, I think in general, like, the, the process, plus the onboarding and the training, like, still a work in progress. But, like, we're getting there. Yeah. Um, diversity and inclusion has been a big yeah. push and a big subject. Um, we get a lot of requests for diversity hiring, um, and it's always been a value of ours. Um, but now more than ever, also through this pandemic, we've, we've got Black Lives Matter as a big movement, um, long overdue. And I think that we can play a role as leaders. How do for you sure. um, look at that as it relates to leading your team and creating a safe environment? for them to share, but also uh, as um, creating a diverse um, population that represents the community. Yeah, I mean, we are, um, we are focused on hiring diverse people and diverse, uh, bringing diverse mentalities to the table. Like we can do a lot better on diversity hiring, you know, particularly as a startup. I think that the areas that we as a company have been really focused on through um, through coronavirus, like, is really trying to figure out, and um, Black Lives Matter now, like, is really figuring out how to get our company to engage in a way that people feel comfortable, because it is a complex subject, um, and so, and the other, like, one of the uh, nonprofits that we have been supporting as a company is a, a company called Year Up. Have you heard of Year oh, Up? I love Year Up, of course, yeah. Do you deal with Mark yeah. Sherman? Yeah, no, it's great. So Year Up is a great, yeah, it's a great organization. Um, and like this, uh, this kind of concept of trying to enable other people to have opportunity and mentoring people to get into the tech industry where they can basically accelerate their careers is something that 
we're particularly passionate about. So we try to have, um, we like today we do a, um, uh, we have two days a year called Mind Body Spirit Days where uh, employ generally speaking, it's all about kind of doing healthy things together as a team. Uh, oh, and that's then awesome. now in, in, in the world of coronavirus, we basically, today is our Mind Body Spirit Day actually. And we're encouraging the the team to basically do things that are um, that are personally meaningful for them around race and racial justice and equality. Um, mm -hmm. So you know, I think like kind of trying to provide more opportunities for the team to participate. Like I'm going to be speaking at Year Up today, um, and I'd say of all the things in my career, the mentorship of my uh, my students at Europe are probably like some of the things I'm most proud of uh, in terms of the ability for them to basically go from, you know, being in a family uh, that's never gone to college, having a job as a security guard, to then having like a real job where they're making good money, they have benefits, they're, they have a career. Um, that's been incredibly meaningful for me and sort of trying to find more opportunities where Safari and Safari employees can help other people in the community has been important. That's incredible. I think that, um, like they say, with parenting or with leading a team or with anything, instead of just putting lip service to it, actually doing, people learn a lot more yeah. and they're inspired more to watch you actually yeah. do, you know, and, yeah. um, and that's incredible. And so... Um, what are your goals as far as like, where do you want to take the company? Where are you hoping to see Safari? I mean, we, yeah, I mean, we, we started the company to build a great Seattle-based company. Um, and, you know, I'd say like you look at a lot of companies and they're either acquired or you end up having a, a remote workforce that's spread out. So like we had that, like I think building a company that is a place where you can build great product and have great technology that's, you know, right in Seattle is kind of what we're trying to do and, and focused mm -hmm. on. And so, you know, we'll see what the, the, the future holds, but we're definitely feel like we're on to something big and we are, we have great progress and great residents oh, yeah. with our customers. And, you know, I, I think like the goal is to build as, as great a company as possible. Well, you're also bringing so much value because you're helping these companies find hidden costs that they wouldn't otherwise know exist and saving them money, which is well, and then, so important right now. I mean, companies are just trying to do right. what they can to, to get ahead. Right. And, and then, um, you know, and yeah. when we started, they can then reinvest that into hiring people or invest in R&D. So that's sort of, that's our goal and our vision is basically to enable kind of to take data and drive it to intelligence and really yeah. help uh, companies optimize their purchasing process. Yeah, that's great. And so um, I want to get back to this, what you started with, which was the happiness thing. Um, yeah. What have you learned? You, and you're, you're seeking in the last five years, kind of trying to learn more and reading books. Um, what is, how do we all become more happy and not link it oh. to uh, success? Yeah, I think this, like, um, you know, it, it's, a lot of times it's the most obvious things, right? Which is in the things you hear about all the time, right? So a lot of it is about, you know, it's about the journey, not about the end point, right? That's a huge one. It's about kind of being in the moment. Um, and then I think as like, you know, being in tech and being, you know, going to the right college and having, 
um, a certain set of friends who might be working in tech, right? You get kind of, you have the, like one of the, um, one of the biggest problems is kind of that, that like, you know, you're constantly looking at other people and looking at how other people have achieved and you're like, what, you know, you get addicted to achievement or you get addicted to success and you, when things don't, when things don't work out exactly as you had planned, like it's like crushing and you end up having a lot of mental trauma from it. So I think like kind of putting everything in per better perspective is really important around like mm -hmm. um, setting expectations and setting goals and really being in the moment and really focusing on the journey versus kind of focusing on kind of material gain or reputational gain or, you know, or like comparing yourself to others on social media or LinkedIn. Like, I think those are all things which ultimately drive unhappiness. And yeah. these are things like, you know, it's been true since the Buddha, like in, in like 2,500 2, years ago, 2,600 years ago, a lot of the same problems have, are, you know, just exacerbated by technology now because you can just right. see everything and you can have anything in theory and that this kind of unlimited ability to have anything or achieve anything causes a lot of unhappiness. Yeah, I think that this, um, the takeaway from this moment, and I realize it's a luxury to even have a moment to think about a takeaway during COVID because some people are just trying to survive and I, I feel guilty even saying this, but I do think that the slowdown and the reset almost energetically for the world needed to happen in some way. I, I wish sure. it hadn't been through a pandemic, but that way of yeah. kind of getting back to the basics of like, okay, we have a roof over our head, we have shelter, we have food, we have love, we have friendship. Yeah. You know, you kind of break it down in these material things, although they're fun, they start, you, you do need that kind of um, leveling every now and then. And I think our country sure. kind of needed a good kick in the butt in that way. Yeah. I'm sad that the way that it's happened and how crazy it's been and how challenging it's been for, for our country. But um, hopefully um, it will be grounding in a certain way. And I don't know then, why I think that, but I, I feel that way. Totally. But, and then there are lots of little things that people should do as well. Like there's like, you know, they're like happiness hacks too, right? Which is like- Like, like gratitude but, practice. I've heard, I heard that a lot. Like you yeah. wake up in the morning and you meditate and gratitude and- Meditation, the gratitude journal, like every day, just write down three things that you're, you know, you're thankful for, you know, saying thanks, like with, as a family and reinforcing that, um, you know, you be it at dinner, like those things like are really useful to, to do for your family as well. Um, but, you know, it all comes down to slowing down, appreciating what you have and being reflective of, you know, why, you know, how thankful you are to be in the position you are versus always wanting, you know, I say that the two things, like, it's, it's very basic, but like, this the sort of like, you know, where, where a lot of anguish comes from is like either excessive planning about what's going to happen in the future and what do I need to do to get there or excessive regret about things that didn't go well. So if you can actually bring yourself back to the moment and be like, wow, you know what, life is pretty good and I'm happy. And, you know, I think like that's, that's a very simple but important thing for everyone to do. Yeah, I think so too. Well, I'm, um, Really glad to have you on the podcast. I always um, 
I always end the podcast with asking the ultimate question, which is what fuels you? Yeah. Uh, I, so I guess like personally, professionally, like I love the energy from working with a team and creative problem solving, like finding a hard problem and running the mountain up a mountain with my team. And then family wise, like I would say it's probably, I'm sure everyone says this, it's some sort of, it's like my family is really the, the most important thing to me. And I just need to keep reinforcing that to myself, especially when you're trapped in a house for like three months with your family. Yeah. You just make sure you really, really appreciate them for everything they are. Yeah. It's funny. I ran into a friend and he's like, I kind of feel like I'm like caught up with the family. I'm like, that's the best yeah. way to yeah. say it. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I right. love them, yeah, I'm but I'm, I'm pretty yeah. much, I'm good. I'm ready to see new people. So yeah, luckily right. we're, we're entering that and hopefully, um, hopefully I get to see you soon. You know, yeah, this has be been great. super fun and I love just getting to know you better and learning more and um, I'm rooting for you. I think that um, you're, you've always been so generous and clearly beloved. I've only heard the most amazing things about you. So um, um, much nice. continued success. No, for sure. Thank you very much. Good to much. see you. Have a wonderful weekend and we'll too. talk soon. Thank you. Okay. All right. Bye. Sounds good. Bye, Shauna. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.